Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Climate change. Do we understand how fear is shaping our lives? We fear each other. We fear strangers. We fear our neighbors. And we even fear those who parent differently than us. There is an outbreak of fear infecting countless millions of people in our country. Daily, we are told by scrolling through our news sources or listening to well-intentioned friends that we should be afraid of what's lurking in the world. But the only answer offered for surviving fear in our current sea of polarization is one that rends us into opposing sides, energizing us with anger, and widens the distance between foe and friends. We need something more profound, more powerful, more popular that can disrupt our hearts conditioned to fear and our world controlled by polarization. My guest Dan White believes that love is the way forward. Love Over Fear is his new book and it's a compelling guide to conquering fear with love in an age of polarization. It's a great book and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Dan White. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. You wrote a book, Love Over Fear, Facing Monsters, Befriending Enemies, and Healing Our Polarized World. You, you tell several vignettes, you know, personal stories about fear. Do you, would you classify yourself as like an anxious person or a person particularly given to anxiety and fear? I mean, is that how much of the book, Nietzsche says every philosopher is, uh, every, every philosophy is the philosopher's, philosopher's personal confession. Is this your confession in some sense? Yeah, I would, I would, uh, certainly say that fear is my base uh, default. And uh, I actually do have a, I don't know if you're reading my mail here, but I do actually have an anxiety disorder. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a big part of uh, how I move through the world. And uh, I wrote the book from that personal um, place of struggle. Certainly. Are you a six on the Enneagram by any chance? I'm not. I'm a five, which is in the, five. Okay. Which is in, all right. yeah. in the fear triad. Yep. Right, 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 right. For all those people who don't know that, the Enneagram is a personality test. Jungian. Yeah. Basically, kind of Jungian archetypes. Some people think it's amazing. I, I'm one of them. Other people think it's like, you know, uh, like uh, alchemy or something, sure, you know, sure. weird and, and, and awful, but I love it. So, yes. okay, so, so at, what, at what point, like, I, I don't know. I mean, you are a religious practitioner. You've planted a church in the Syracuse mm-hmm. area. I, I wonder, did you grow up in a religious context? I did. Yeah. I was uh, raised in a, um, you know, someone would consider an evangelical home um, and then went off to uh, school to study, uh, to prepare to be a pastor and went to seminary and did that whole, that whole deal. And then I've been uh, leading local churches for the last 20 years. So do you think like growing up in a religious background and, and, and one that's, as you self-described, evangelical, did that help mitigate the anxiety problem or did it make it worse? <laughs> you know, I have two, I mean, they had two things converging uh, in my upbringing was the church that I grew up in uh, certainly peddled a face of God that was fear oriented. Um, obedience was the language that was used all the time. And uh, what, what um, just the picture that God was painted was one that I should be afraid of. And because if I am afraid of God, then I'll 
then I will obey God. And if I obey God, then God will reward me. And that was the primary motif of God. But then I had my parents and, and my dad, my mom and dad were both exceptionally warm and gentle and accepting. And, uh, and you know, my dad uh, to this day still gives me a, a wet smooch and tells me how much he loves me and how proud he is of me. And so I had these two worlds actually colliding, the church that we went to, but then the house that I grew up in. So um, there's always been this precarious relationship that I've had with uh, religion, evangelicalism, and then what I knew on a personal level from um, the relationships around me. So it does seem to be a mismatch there for me. Yeah, it's interesting to me that that a lot of people I found that have had challenging experiences in American evangelical churches Mm. wind up. I I know a lot of them that have stayed in that context, broadly defined and write and, and speak in that context. And that seems to be you. I mean, it seems like Mm -hmm. you're still, you're published by Moody press here. I mean, this is so, Mm -hmm. so, I mean, how have you navigated staying in a world that has at least in part been, been, something that fostered some of the stuff you're writing against. Sure. Well, you know, I, it depends on what circle I'm in, Scott, but you know, locally I'm, I dwell more in progressive spaces um, and I probably wouldn't be called an evangelical. Uh, But then uh, my translocal speaking engagements are in more evangelical spaces. Um, I think it's because I speak, I know the language and I understand that culture. Well, um, and the reason I published with Moody specifically was so that I could actually speak to those that I would, I'm longing for transformation to see. So if I were going to publish a book um, on this through a, a progressive um, publication, not a single conservative would read it. <laughs> and so my passion is actually to dwell in spaces um, and be uh, be a bridge builder. And so um, I can sit down with uh, the the local um, clergy here that are fully affirming in LGBTQ issues, and then I can also sit down with uh, my local Reformed Calvinist pastors, um, and I understand uh, where they're coming from, and I'm always hoping to stretch them a little bit more uh, than they, they're willing to be stretched. So I don't know if that helps a little bit, but that's I dwell in both worlds. Um, yeah. You tell a story in the book that is so interesting. You say you had this experience where a couple comes up to you and says, look, we got to leave the church. There are too many progressives here. It's just not a safe space for us. And a couple weeks later, another couple says, we got to leave this place. It's too conservative. We want to be in a real progressive church. Right. And that happens in the space of a couple of weeks. I'm thinking this church sounds fantastic. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, 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 you know, Hmm. but that's, Quite honestly, I mean, it, it, that's a hard place in a tribal yeah. culture, right? Where there is so much fear, yeah, and polarization. That that's a hard space for for the average American yeah. religious person to to dwell in. I think, yeah, I think ideally it sounds fantastic, Scott. Uh, I think in real time, it's a lot of tension. Um, it's a lot of discomfort, um, especially because of the culture that we're in that's very tribal, very polarized, very separate and purist in in who we relate with. And so, you know, my local church here is uh, a constant place of tension uh, because we 
want to orient around extreme versions of ourselves. I mean, that's really, I, I want to be with people who think like me, act like me, read what I read, are passionate about what I'm passionate about. And I don't want to be with people that are not uh, in that. And so that collides in Christian community. And so that story you shared uh, that started, was actually in 2011 during the uh, Romney and Obama campaign. It it ju- which sounds you know like child's play now compared to what we're facing at this point, but back then it just was a complete disruption. It exposed our um, that one story. Those two people that came to me really was symbolic of what was happening across our whole church. Uh, it the disruption and the the distaste and disdain we had for each other came to the surface because uh, it was able to hide out until that election came. And then we started picking sides and uh, separating. Um, hey, why? Okay, so how did you? What what changed? I mean, it, before that election, people just sort of peacefully coexist. Was there yeah. a tense coexistence? Or? There was a tense coexistence. You know, I we have a team of leaders, but for me, I I mean, I held the space uh, in uh, as a Anabaptist. If you're familiar with that history, um, you know, nonviolence and peacemaking is essential to the gospel. And so we were able to create a space where both conservatives and progressives could uh, coexist with one another, appreciate one another, um, because we were not taking rabid political positions from the pulpit. And so um, we we would have a lot of political conversations in discipleship and around the table. And um, But when it came to the pulpit, we weren't, you know, I wasn't, we weren't using that as um, uh, a, a place where we were stumping for political um, for politicians. That election uh, kind of made people start picking sides where that wasn't really happening. So I think these public uh, these public events um, do create an exposure where people start saying, "I'm for this person, I'm against this person." It just creates uh, an us against them, and so. Um, we, we never, I mean, our church is small and, uh, the reason I think that is, is because one of the reasons I think that is, is because most people don't want to exist in that space. Uh, they don't want to inhabit a space, uh, where I think right now is with their enemies. Um, and I think that's even more volatile than even the race issue right now is dwelling in a yeah, yeah, actually dem- demographic data shows like there's yeah. studies that show that that, that yeah. race people are more anxious about their children marrying <laughs> yes. outside of their political persuasion than outside of the race which maybe I is know. good for race relations relations right. or yeah. it's bad for our tribal identities yeah. i don't know which one yeah. right yeah and so that i think that's what got exposed in our, our local fellowship was um we started to be honest about how much we loathed each other. It's interesting. You spend some time in the book talking about just how our brain works and how, yes. you know, you have the, you, you have the sort of, um, the prefrontal cortex, right? Which is where our, our rationality comes from. Yes. It's sort of what makes us a little different than uh, say other mammals and things like that development yeah. there. But, but you talk about how the amygdala is what's responsible for, for fear, anger, and excitement. And you think about like, it creates dopamine, right? So it's yes. like, this is why people say after a breakup, a, a, you know, an intense breakup that happens early on in a romantic relationship, it can create the same kind of feeling as like heroin withdrawal. I mean, people actually get sick yes. because of the, because of the deprival of dopamine. 
And also you say fear, things like fear also give us these chemical hormone shots. And so yes. it's weird. It, it, we can be conditioned in some weird ways to almost uh, in some strange ways biochemically get turned on by our fear, even yeah. though it's not a pleasant experience at the same time. Yeah. I mean, fear is a drug. <laughs> and, the, and, and, and the surge that it gives us in the face of people we disagree with or people we don't like or people that we see as an enemy – it offers us a strong return, um, a strong chemical return. This, the frustrating part of, the, of how our brains are wired is that our prefrontal cortex doesn't do that. Um, and so you don't, get, you don't get dopamine from doing logarithms. No, and so we naturally go towards that return. And we nurture that return. And then we start building you know, a case and a heaping mound of facts of why we should hate and loathe and uh, be viscerally uh, disgusted with. And, and you know, we, we build a case around our fear because it works for us and it feels good. And both the left and the right um, uh, are not, I, I would say at this point in our culture and even on a local level, are not really attuned to how much of their case for each against each other is actually fear-based. Um, we often think it's because we're educated and we're intellectually informed, but I, I think a good chunk of it is because we just fear one another. Um, and so that's what, you know, that's, that was my ex 2011. I'm like, I can't, I don't know how to heal my church. Um, I, I had to start exploring what was actually driving. I mean, what was, the powerful force behind all this. And, and that's what led me to fear. Yeah. You spend a lot of time in the book talking about, you know, first John talks about perfect love casts out yeah. fear and, and, and God as you know, this is the, these, these statements, the, the strongest is statements in the new Testament are yeah. God is light and love. Right. Yes. I mean, these are the, at the heart of the statements that are really direct about God's being. And, and so it seems that you're arguing the more we know that God, the God revealed in the Christ event, yeah. that when the more we can dwell in the presence of that God, the less space there is for fear. But but it seems like that so often you also point out that we, we you know, we often so, so often make what does George Bernard Shaw say that uh, God made man in his in his image and man returned the favor. And so we often sort of. Yes. You, you kind of said we often make a God in our own image, which it, it, with overladen with the fear mm. and, and the othering and the anger. And so often yes. the God, like we, we, we construct a, a God concept or, or yes. an idea of God that actually it, it doesn't mitigate the fear, but keeps the, the hit of the drug, makes it more intense. Yeah, that's I mean, that's what that text is saying in First John, that uh, perfect love casts out fear and fear has to do with punishment. And the reason that we project onto God, a God that fears what we fear is because we want God to punish, to be punitive towards those we disagree with or we dislike. Um, we don't want God to extend kindness and affection and warmth towards our enemies. I mean, this is the story of Jonah. <laughs> um, he was not, he was not okay with a God who would extend that kind of grace to his enemies, especially the enemies. I mean, we know that in the book, I talk about the history, but these enemies actually obliterated uh, his family. Um, the bloodshed that he had saw and witnessed. Um, and now God is asking him to go and extend kindness to them. Uh, that's not okay. That, that picture of God is not okay with Jonah. And I think 
fundamentally, that's it's not okay with us. And this is what we're struggling with. That's why we project. You know, it's a psychological term. We we project onto God what we want God to look like, so God can carry out our agendas. Um, and our agenda is fear, and fear has to do with punishment, uh, which is punitive. We don't want God that 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 is providing space and kindness and love and room for repentance uh, uh, for our enemies. So, I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Press, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Winkhenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Yeah, you talk about in the book I, I, having like the power of table fellowship and, and mm. the power of it in the life of Jesus and the power of it even today. And I mean, I think of this, you know, if if you're going to go on a first date, and you're not sure how, how it's going to go. You, you you mean for drinks or for coffee, right? Like, you, or if you're going to fire someone, you do it over coffee. You don't do it over dinner, right? Like, I, I mean, I, I mean, most of us don't want to have awkward situations sure. over meals, right? Yeah. Like, we we often want to eat with people that we're comfortable with, and yet you're saying you say in this book that part of the way we could dispel fear is actually sitting in that uncomfortable space, actually not just having coffee yeah. or or sort of hands off, sort of. Yes. boundary interactions, but actually sitting and breaking bread with people that maybe trigger our fear, our, our, our fear responses. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Scott, most of the breakups happen through text, not, not even through right, a, right, exactly, a coffee exactly. any longer, right? They, everything is happening through detail. I mean, that's what's great about these relationships today. You can, you could basically, um, some people, they just, you know, you can have sex and never talk. You connect yeah. over sex, yeah. right? And then you have sex and then you, know, you say, let's not do that again over text. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, right. right? We, we yeah. intimize our technology and technology yeah. has our intimacy. Yeah. Well, that's well said. Yeah. So much of our connections are having happening through detached mediums. And this, this just perpetuates the enemy dynamic that's happening between us. And so, I mean, I wanted to come up with this, a better solution than actually having to physically be in proximate, proximate space with our enemies. But there, there is no other way 
uh, to move towards healing than to actually physically be with someone we dislike or feel an offense towards. And so, uh, and then because I'm, you know, a passionate Jesus follower, this is exactly what Jesus did. I mean, and it was probably the most irritating part of the journey for his disciples. Um, and it was probably irritating for those. I mean, I know it was irritating for Judas. Uh, Judas did not want Jesus extending kindness to the Roman Empire. <laughs> he wanted he wanted Jesus to obliterate them and bring um, intense justice down. Not having table fellowship with them, um, and so the the journey towards healing. The journey is to actually start building muscles learning how to actually be with our enemies around the table, um, extending compassion, curiosity. And this dismantles the antagonism between us. I mean, I've lived that story, um, and, and I can't say that it's, it's, it's gotten easier. <laughs> I mm-hmm. always feels there's always an amount of anxiety and pain and uh, possibility that it can go in crazy directions. Um, but my the telos of my imagination has changed. I have seen more transformation at the table than um, than I thought was possible, and so I think most of our hopelessness and uh, and despair around polarization being healed is because most of us aren't actually at the table with our enemies. Most of our exchanges are happening through social media. They're happening through verbal grenade tossing over emails um we have not actually tried this this narrow path um that jesus has piloted for us and so that's my hope for the book is that people will actually take some small steps towards meeting with those they hate literally if you're conservative um putting into your schedule meeting with some progressive that you think is a flaming liberal who is going to ruin the country and having a succession of meals with them. Uh, (laughs) Or if you're the opposite perspective, if you're a progressive who thinks conservatives are the oppressor and they are, um, they're killing black bodies. I mean, can you fill your calendar with meeting with them? And this is, to me, this is the space where transformation takes place. Um, there's really no other space. I mean, education, reading books, reading podcasts, all that stuff is wonderful. And I'm on a podcast right now. I think it's, those are helpful, but the, the ground that needs to be repaired is, is at the table. Yeah. Is this because, you know, you, you talk about in the book about Jesus, the disruptor and how yeah. in all of the camps that Jesus faced that he, he was, he's kind of a classic, none of the above, right? Yeah. He would sort of implode the, all the either or choices that where, where antagonisms come, right? Like yes. they're usually reduced, simplified kind of, you have to be this or this, and we have to be on opposite sides. And I wonder how much, you know, everything we know about confirmation bias is the more education you get, the better you get at at confirming your biases. You just get more sources and you're better at manipulating the information. And so is it, is part of your, your passion for the table that, that, it's a disruptive environment. Like it, it's mm. harder to use for confirmation bias and things like, cause, cause it's really kind of, it's closer to I thou not I it. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you're, when you're passing salad and pouring each other's wine and these kinds of things, it, it's, there's something that's harder to, yeah. to, to make an, an I it out of something. Scott as I mean, that's right on. That's exactly what the table has the power to do to disrupt our, our biases, um, all of the gaps that we fill in 
um, just by reading stuff online. The table obliterates um, the monster dynamic I talk about in in the book, um, where the table actually rehumanizes people. And so, I my part of my part of my amygdala enjoys hatred. It enjoys fear. It it relishes. Um, the generalizations that I can come up with about people. The moment I have to dwell with someone at the table and see them as a person, um, they begin to fall away. They begin to crumble. Um, and this is, I mean, this is, I, I mean, I'm going to use a strong here. That's the, that's, that's the gospel. Um, that's the good news is uh, that God did not just send a 10 commandments 2.0. He sent a person with a body in physical flesh. Um, and this is the power of incarnation. And so most people want to jump around that table, skip the table, but it, it has the power to disrupt all our biases. Um, and you're right. There's, I mean, there's so much research coming out right now about how we can take information and twist it towards our, um, already existing beliefs. We all think we're objective, <laughs> you know? Um, and th- that's just not the truth. And this is why we have to have a real humble existential posture that I actually don't see everything. I don't see all things. Um, and interpersonal presence is actually the great educator. Um, not reading more, not, um, you know, uh, listening to, 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 to more stuff that informs my opinion. Interpersonal presence with my enemy is the great, um, is the great disruptor. So, yeah, I'm with you. G.K. Chesterton, allegedly, mm. you know, the, the London Times, I think, had this essay contest, and they asked for submissions on the topic, what's wrong with the world? And he just submitted, I am G.K. Oh, Chesterton. Yes. And I, I mean, I wonder yeah. this this classic notion of original sin like that Chesterton is sort of alluding to there, that, that if we understand ourselves as... Uh, tragically flawed yeah. you know that this is this is what part of it part of what it means to be in the human family i wonder how how in addition to the notion of incarnation and and the, the sense that the, the god of love descends and disrupts also how much like that we assume that like we repent of our virtues not just our vices so my best mm. day i'm probably a mixed bag yes. I, mean, I wonder how yes. much that kind of anthropology would also go a longer way to sort of cutting other people's slack because you, you realize everybody's a mixed bag. Yes. uh, As opposed to sort of um, having kind of perfectionist expectations. I mean, I wonder if it's just a a more modest uh, view of yourself can kind of lead to a more generous estimation of others. Yeah. When you, when you can receive and contemplate the mercy of God, God's mercy when I understand how merciful God is towards me um, in my marriage uh, as a human, as a neighbor, as a friend, um, I can begin to offer that mercy to others. So even on my best day, um, I am selfish. Um, I am self-loathing. I am tr- protecting my ego. Um, and I have not arrived. And, and we we begin to... Um, lose touch with that reality when we start orienting around our ideology rather than our humanity. Um, our ideologies tell us you are, you are, you are in, you are above others because of what you know now, or because of what you, your opinion has been formed around. 
when you're when you stay in tune to your humanity, you realize you're a mixed bag of beauty and brokenness, and uh, this allows you to sit with your worst enemy and see their brokenness and their beauty. I, I love this is why I love the word compassion, uh, made up of two words: co and passion. Co, both passion, suffering. Um, no matter who I'm sitting with, we're both suffering in some way. Um, we lose touch with that. We think we start ranking sufferings. We think my suffering is worse than their suffering, or this people group is worse than this, pe- has it worse than that people group. And so when we sit down with people, we don't realize that there's a story of suffering in everybody. Um, one of the stories I share in the book, um, which is was really the climax of my own transformation, was when a, uh, a really a black oppressed woman sat down with a uh, a veteran, a white veteran, fe- older fella who hated her, and they both saw each other for the first time around the table, and they both realized they were suffering, and it was a I mean, it's, it actually opened up space for a whole neighborhood to move towards healing. But this is because uh, they were able to see that they were both human. Uh, when we start orienting around ideologies is the moment we start dehumanizing each other and seeing each other as monsters uh, rather than um, image bearers. It's interesting. You know, you talk about this sort of fight or flight response, or you talk about in terms of attack or avoid that oftentimes yeah. our disposition in, in times of fear and anxiety yes. and, and, and when we're sort of we're, when our amygdala is kind of going out of control that we either want to sort of attack or avoid. But it's almost like your book is, is sort of saying rather than attack or avoid, there's real power in abide, in abiding. Yeah. Yep. Like, like neither, like not, it's almost like the grace of doing nothing, mm. right? Like, like this is from an H. Richard Niebuhr essay, but like you, there's a grace in sort of yeah. not attacking or avoiding yeah. But just kind of abiding in, in the ambiguity for a bit. Yeah, it's probably the most uh, uncomfortable uh, option between attack or avoid is actually to move it into space of I, – you, I use the language affection, but av- abiding is, is, is spot on. And it is a space of ambiguity. It is a space of stillness. It is a space of not contending for who is right and who is wrong. Um, although – that doesn't mean that that doesn't come about at times, um, but it 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 is a third way uh, beyond the emotional flooding that is happening in our brains around fight or flight or attack or avoid, and that's what's happening. We're being flooded with only two options, personally as well as in our culture uh, and well as in our politics and even in our religion. We're being emotionally flooded with either you need to fight these people or you need to avoid these people, and. Jesus is offering us a space that is um, a both and, not an either or, with people. Um, I think that that transforms us as Jesus followers and to sit still with with people in the same way that God has sat still with us <laughs> and has loved us. That's why that profound passage where Jesus says that I have I reign uh, justice on on the unjust and the I read my mercy on the just and the unjust. He is unilateral and, uh, and, and generous with both those who we think deserve it and don't deserve it. Um, that makes us uncomfortable because we want to only hand out uh, um, kindness and goodness to those who we think deserve it, uh, and specifically our political um, affiliations. And so uh, it's, it is that third option of abiding or affection is an ambiguous space. Yeah. Since you, you talk about that, that 
story that happened in 2011. Since then, yeah. several years have passed, and, and we're in a more and seemingly more intense and and probably more polarized political climate. Certainly, it, how, what is your church like now? In, in, in you know, since you've worked through some of this or going through some of this, is is it what's it like going through this kind of tribal moment in your congregation now? <laughs> well, it's uh, it's a both and. <laughs> There's uh, the journey that we took um, of working through um, specifically love over fear as a discipleship mechanism um, was too hot for some for some folks uh, was uh, too painful and they were more discipled by by the culture war than I think by the way of Jesus honestly and the culture and war my guess is my guess is that's on both sides of the polarization right like, yeah listen uh, it's it this is not the the left or the right didn't have uh didn't get any kudos in this it, we're we're bo- we were both bogged down in our us versus them categories and so um and i think it's because we're working off the same scorecard uh emotionally and 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 politically and that is i need to win um and you need to lose these false choices that we're stuck in and so, uh, I, you know, I had some people who weren't okay with uh, not winning um, and not okay with moving towards their enemies rather than away from their enemies. At the same time, we ha- we've had a lot of transformation of people um, who have learned and started embodying the gospel of enemy love. Um, and in my neighborhood, um, I'm seeing that as well. And so... Yeah, you know, I don't like to say it's a it's a, a home run, but uh, it's certainly we you know we've we've rounded some bases. I I think honestly, it's probably the most neglected aspect of discipleship in all of Christianity. There's very few messages or sermons you can hear on enemy love, and then double click on that, and there's very few uh, journeys of discipleship of loving our enemies. It's just it's just not it's just not our jam, and. Uh, I think that's why we're in the predicament we're in right now, where the church is splitting, becoming either more conservative and hard right or more progressive and hard left. And it's because we haven't learned the way of Christ in, in, in this manner. Well, I mean, you're certainly I, I, you're certainly a great example of resources uh, to that end. And you've written a great book, Love Over Fear. Mm. Thanks for writing it. And thanks for taking some time to talk with me about it. Oh, it's been fun, Scott. Your questions were stellar. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds, go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Dan for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Love Over Fear. It's a great book. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.